Hello, hello. Tonight we start Ephesians. We start a new series in our church. And Ephesians is a great, fun, optimistic book. And we are going to uh, walk through the better part of the spring, even though I can't even really say spring when it's 32 degrees outside and cold and wet. This is going to be a, a, a focused study that we're going to do for the better part of this new year. And before I get into Ephesians and some background like we do when we start series like this, I want to tell you, because it is ski season, I want to tell you about my favorite hobby. I don't think it can be called a hobby because I don't get to do it that much because there's nowhere to ski in Dallas. But I love to ski. It is ski season. I love to go out and do that. And Amy and I, while we've only been married for about five years, coming up on five, we've been together for about ten and that means that before I ever decided I wanted to marry this person or while we were just still boyfriend and girlfriend and in college and all this, I said this woman had better like to ski because that's what I'm about. Beaches are cool, but I'm a ski man. And so Amy and I went with a church group and it was her first time to ski. She went to academy and got some ridiculous clothes and, and, and borrowed some gloves and she didn't know what she was getting herself into, but we went skiing. And my wife was such a trooper, she saw the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, she was hooked on the view, hooked on the, the, the cool weather, the change of pace. She was not hooked, however, on the altitude. And so as she was learning to ski, she was powering through because she was so madly in love with me that she wanted to love to ski. And so we're skiing and I'm seeing her on the bunny slopes and I'm trying to get as many runs as I possibly can because then ski school ends and that means that she's going to slow me down. And so I'm watching her and she's powering through even though she's not feeling well because of the altitude. And it, raise your hand if you've been skiing before. Yes, look at this. Man, these Texans, rock and roll. Okay, all of you who didn't, after our mission trip to El Paso and Juarez, we're going on a ski trip because we earned it if we build that shed, right? Listen, skiing is beautiful. But if you've never skied before, you may not understand this, but what's really the hardest thing about learning how to ski? It's not skiing itself. It's the lift. It's the lift. Do we have a picture of a ski lift? Amy because she knew I was going to talk about skiing, she didn't know what I was going to say, she wanted it perfectly clear that though the ski lift and learning the ski lift is difficult, she mastered the ski lift, okay? She wants to say that it didn't come and sweep her off her feet, but there was a story because the altitude was getting to her. She, she gets on and she's nervous and it's her first time up, the big ski lift, and the ski lift is, is coming, the chair is coming behind her, it hits, she sits, and she's going up, which is 50% of the battle, she's up, then she begins, so her, her nerves kind of, you know, they kind of, she's relaxed because she's in the thing, but then she sees, okay, when we start to get five feet, eight feet, 10 feet, she realizes, wait a minute, why isn't there like a whole cage? Why isn't there like a whole ground beneath me? Why is there one little bar that Adam may or may not decide to bring down? And why do I have these skis that are weighing me down and pulling me even more with gravity? And so she's starting to get a feel that, man, this is kind of tough. This is weird. Keep in mind, she's just learning how to ski. Keep in mind that her altitude sickness is hitting her, but also keep in mind, as I told you, she's madly in love with Adam Wood and she wants to love how to ski. So she begins to look up, not at the ground, and she says, man, this is beautiful. 
And she begins to look at the scenery and she says, this is beautiful, this is great. There's nothing like this in Texas. I'm paraphrasing because Amy and I probably didn't really talk like that. This is great, you know, this is beautiful. There's nothing like this in Texas, but she loves the mountain. So her nerves, I said, she's relaxed. But then she begins to see that we're hovering over not bunny slopes, but actual slope slopes. Actual greens, which are for beginners, and blues, which are for not-so-beginners, and then blacks, which are for awesome skiers like myself. Just kidding. Um, But seriously. Um, She's looking at the runs, and she says, she shifts her focus. She says, the mountain is beautiful, and this is great, but when I look down, can I actually do that? It's great from the bird's eye view, from the ski lift view, when you look ahead and you see the mountain and the range beyond that. And if you're even brave enough, you can look back and it's beautiful to look down and see the resort. And you can just sit there and enjoy it. But the thing about a ski lift is you've got to get off at the top. And so you enjoy the view going up, but at a certain point you've got to look down and say, well, this may be beautiful, but can I actually do this, right? And I think that's one of the biggest questions of the Christian life. When we get this sweeping, beautiful thing about Jesus dying to rescue the world, we read passages that are big ski lift views, that are gorgeous, that says God the Father was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. This is big and this is beautiful. But then, as the ski lift starts to teeter toward the top and you realize that you've got a, the ski lift that pushed you getting on is going to push you getting off. And as I mentioned, my lovely girlfriend at the time, now wife, the altitude was disagreeing with her. The nerves start to creep back because she's got to now say goodbye to the beautiful view and actually get off the lift. And what happens is this, she gets off the lift and she does not fall. Amen, hallelujah, she's awesome. But what she does is very quietly without saying a word, and I remember this clear as day, she had a bright blue poofy jacket and she had her poles and she gets those and she scuttles and it takes five minutes and she scuttles and she's going and I said, hey, the, the run's this way. We, we'd already kind of seen it. We're, we're going. And she scuttles and she scuttles and I see her and barf on the top of the run. She gave me permission to sell this story because she was such a champ. She turned around, probably covered it with some snow and she actually went down the mountain. Hooray! Round of applause for Amy 10 years ago. Because for Amy, she knew that this thing didn't come back around. She knew that we can enjoy the view, but we can also say we've got a run to do. And when I say the Christian life, we can look at these beautiful passages. We can look at the ski lift view. But at the end of the day, what really difference does it make if Jesus died to rescue the world? If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus says these beautiful things, come to me, come follow me. What difference does the big picture, beautiful, theological, doctrinal things, what difference does all of that make if it doesn't make a lick of difference when you're praying for your kid or when you're trying to love that coworker or your relative or your spouse for that matter? 
What difference does all the big, beautiful things on the top of the ski lift, what difference does any of that view makes? Because really, at the end of the day, I've just got to ski. And Ephesians, when I think about the ski lift, when I think about the Christian life, when we say, yeah, that sounds great, but does it actually work? Yeah, it sounds great, but can I actually do it? Ephesians gives us a ski lift view of what God has done in Christ. All these big picture, beautiful things. But more than that, it shows us how to live in Christ. So we get the ski lift picture and we get a a letter that is six chapters, but it's jam-packed with beautiful vistas of the Rocky Mountains. But then it scales it back down and says, guess what? The same beautiful power that did this for the world and the big picture has everything to do with you speaking the truth in love. It has everything to do with how you love your children. It has everything you do with speaking to one another in your church. And the common denominator between the big picture ski lift and the everyday practical ski run is this concept of being in Christ. Union with Christ is something that's throughout all of Paul's theology. And we see that in the next big uh, chunk here as we continue to look at the big picture of this book as we introduce it tonight, we see that Christ is the centerpiece of God's saving plan. He is the center point. Everything in the Old Testament comes and finds its fulfillment in Jesus right there in the middle of history. And then everything since Jesus has been profoundly, drastically changed. Because he said, my kingdom is coming and I'm sending a king. My kingdom is coming and I'm sending a king. When the king comes, everything changes. He's the centerpiece of what God set out to do way back in the beginning. That's the big picture. But union with Christ for little old you and me and our church, people with names and pets and jobs and cars that break down, little old you fit into the big, beautiful picture of God's saving plan, and he has put us in Christ, united us with Christ, and it's that centerpiece, it's that reality that you've got to stay awake to. It's that reality that Ephesians reminds us every sentence. Don't just stick with the big picture ski lift view. That view, hold on to it because it has everything to do on how you learn the terrain when you come down the mountain. It's the centerpiece of growth as an individual, you, and also our church. In the middle of that book, toward the end of it actually, in Ephesians chapter 4, he's saying that all of this stuff fits together so that you would grow as a church into maturity, into full stature. So tonight is about this introducing of the letter. It's going to be about some background here in a moment. But before we get to this background, I want to use another analogy because I want to make sure that this in Christ has everything to do with every talk we're going to give in Ephesians. I want to use, when I say centerpiece of growth, maybe this analogy will help you too, okay? We've got ski lift and ski run, big picture and the everyday. Maybe this analogy will help you too. Ephesians will show us that just as when you get on the ski lift, it takes you and goes, well, just like in life, you're born. What did you really have to do with being born? You just had to show up, right? You didn't have really anything to do with it. 
I mean, you sort of knew the muffled voice of your mom and maybe your dad if he sang and read books to you or maybe not. But you just had to show up to be born. The big picture of God's saving plan is this. He's rescued you. You're born. You're born into this new life with God. And that's beautiful and that's great. But then Ephesians will show us also that it's not just about being born. It's about the messy gray area that takes the rest of your life, right? And that's growing up. I talked to somebody this week that said, I'm, you know, I'm in my early 40s. But, you know, 10 years ago when I was in my early 30s, I was really only emotionally about an eight-year-old. And so we have this chronological growth. Well, Ephesians says, that's great you're born into life with God. That's great you're born into life with Christ. But guess what? I care about all these messy details of growing up into a mature human being and person. Because it would be so weird if you're 45 years old and you still wear diapers and if, you're, and if you don't have some debilitating illness. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying like that would be very strange if you're still crying like my two-year-old every time we take a toy from you. Why do you have a toy if you're 45 years old anyway? Did anybody catch all that? Is that enough analogies? Tonight is about big picture, and I want you to see it's about the ski lift view just as much as it is in the everyday. Ephesians is a beautiful book for that. Ephesians is just as much about your birth as it is about growing up. And it all has to do with this idea that Paul talks about of being in Christ. If you have your Bibles, we will turn to Ephesians. It will be on the screen, and we won't go that far into it. In this church, when we introduce a book of the Bible, we like to give a little bit of Sunday school style background. For some of you, this will be really interesting and awesome. For others of you, just maybe we'll put that ski lift picture back on and just hold on with me for another 10 minutes, okay? Paul, who I just mentioned, introduces this letter of Ephesians. We're going to talk tonight about, like I said, some background. And in the first verses of the text in Ephesians chapter 1, we see this, an author and a recipient. It's simple enough, right? Let's look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle is a fancy word for sent one. Paul was an apostle, one who is sent, and he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in, what's that say? In Christ Jesus. Can we say that? In Christ Jesus. One more time. In Christ Jesus. Paul, in all of his 13 letters, he's got 13 letters in your New Testament. If you have your Bible, you can count them there. You'll probably see his name right in the first verse. In all of Paul's letters, he references that phrase, in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's just in Christ. Or maybe it's just in Jesus. Paul references and speaks of and talks about that phrase, in Christ He talks about it over 120 times. It's central to his theology. It's central to everything about the big picture and the little picture. And so he's writing this letter, seemingly, to these people who are in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, the reason why we're titling this whole series In Life in Christ is because of all his 13 letters... He uses that phrase 36 times in this one alone. Paul, right? Well, when we look at this word Paul and 
He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You need to know something. This is when we slap our Sunday school hats back on. There's a problem in a lot of circles, and that's this. I mentioned 13 letters that Paul wrote in our New Testament, every one of them. But as the centuries went on and as more research was found, as more uh, manuscripts were found, there are no original texts. You can't go and find the very first Paul or John or Mark or Matthew that they wrote with their own hand. It's been 2,000 years, y'all. But as manuscripts have gone on and as times have changed and scholarship and research has changed, so has studies in our book that we have come to know and say is the authoritative word inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for instructing, and as our guide. We are Bible people. We believe the Bible. But we need to know something when we approach Ephesians. Of those 13 letters, seven of those letters... All the smart guys in the rooms at all the universities in all the world will say seven of these we know beyond a shadow of the doubt. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul of Tarsus, who was Saul, wrote these seven letters. They're called the uncontested letters of Paul. Seven of them, every Tom, Dick, and Jane that studies this Bible in the original language and knows all of the archaeology says seven of them were sure. Then there's a few more. Two of them, like Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, two of them, most people say, yes, this sounds like Paul, this smells like Paul, this looks like Paul. And then there's this little book, or two, or three, or four. Four of them are, some of them have come under suspect, and many people would say, we're not so sure that Paul wrote these. And so before you start throwing tomatoes at me and before you get scared about what's about to come out of my mouth and why are we spending all this time in Ephesians, if it is one of these four that people think maybe he didn't write it, I need to tell you this because I need to remind you that this book, Ephesians, whether or not it was written by Paul, we need to understand that it is authoritative, that it is inspired, and for 2,000 some years, the church across the world has been gripped by its big picture theology and little day-by-day -day practical life in Christ. It is so authoritative, it is so good, and because some scholars think that it has different language than what Paul writes in maybe Romans or 1 Corinthians, if you want all the seven, I can tell you later. Because it has some different phrases, because it has some different words, or because, watch this, it was a common practice in these days for different people to write a letter and then attach someone else's name to it. Maybe who's already been dead. And guess what? Everybody knew that guy was dead. But maybe the person who wrote a letter was a disciple, an apprentice, a learner from this person, they heard all this stuff about in Christ and all of this, and they heard all of this stuff and they said, you know what, things are pretty rough right now in my church. And I'm going to write a letter that's going to sound like, smell like, look like Paul, and I'm going to put his name on the top. People know he's been long gone, but I'm going to do that as a way of kind of saying by his authority, in his steps, I'm writing this letter. And so that's why some people think that it is uh, a little iffy on Ephesians. Okay, you still with me, Sunday school people? Are we not afraid? Because guess what? Ephesians is God's word, I believe, 
Paul or otherwise, and I'm just going to tell you where I stand. I'm not a scholar. I'm going to just say, yeah, probably Paul wrote it. Because you know what? This whole in Christ business, and it just looks and feels and smells like Paul from my little pea brain. So I'm just going to say Paul, okay? So get ready for the next several weeks. I'm going to say Paul says, Paul says, Paul says, okay? That's the author. Sunday school hat's still on. Real quick, stay with me. We're going to look at who this is written to. This is another reason why people get all hairy about Ephesians. But we need to know this before we look into it. He says, to God's holy people. Holy is a word that just means set apart. Holy, this basket is holy. It's set apart from me. It's different. It's set apart. So to the holy people in Ephesus. These are people that are set apart for God. And he says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. I told you about manuscripts. I told you that we don't have the original first edition Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's okay, because you know what we do have? Thousands and thousands and thousands of accurate copies of series one, two, uh, all the first editions. Are you with me? So in these copies of copies that are tried and true, that it's, it's legit. In the earliest manuscripts, there's this little problem. That word in and that word Ephesus is not in many of the earliest and most reliable ones we have. That may be a problem for some people. And for me, it becomes a problem because tonight if we have time, we're going to look in Acts the book of Acts, where Paul is coming to Jesus and he's learning the Jesus way and he's going here, there, and everywhere. Places like Corinth, places like Laodicea, places like Antioch, and guess what? Places like, right up there, Ephesus. In the book of Acts, Paul has two chapters worth of that book, 19 and 20, Acts 19 and 20, spent in the city of Ephesus. Paul spent time in the city of Ephesus. You should go back and read Acts 19 and 20. It is beautiful. Make a note. Read it this week. It is wild. He had a wild stay in Ephesus. And what we see in Ephesus is Paul didn't just stay for a night. He didn't just stay for a week. He didn't stay for even a year. He stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Then he shows up in Ephesus. He's there for three whole years. That's long for Paul. So when we look at Acts 19, we look at Acts 20, and we see that Paul is ministering, teaching, and droves of people in Ephesus are coming to Jesus and finding life in Christ. We see Paul working for three years. We see him at the end of chapter 20 with a tearful goodbye. He says to the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian pastors who he's labored with, worked with, loved, he tells them, I'm going away and I will not see you again. And he prays for them. He warns them. He says, stay strong. The wolves are coming. Here's why. Paul had to leave and he was never going to see him again because in Ephesians 19, I'm sorry, Acts 19, he's in Ephesus. All of these people are coming and responding to his teaching, finding life in Christ. The Ephesians who worshipped another God, not Jesus, did not take too kindly to that. See, the thing about Ephesians 
was Ephesians didn't want no Jesus because Ephesians had their own God, thank you very much. And I'd like to introduce you to this lovely woman. And her name is Artemis or Diana. Look at her. Isn't that something? She was referred to as Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay? We're talking about Paul the Apostle writing to this group, presumably in Ephesus. We're still there. Now we're talking about Artemis. Artemis was a goddess. She was a huntress. She was a goddess of fertility. We don't know what those weird things are on her shirt, blouse, whatever. But you see in that uh, skinny pencil skirt of hers, there's these little animals, right? Next to her, is it a pencil skirt? What do I know? Y'all quit giggling, Shelby. On her skirt... There are these weird looking animals. She was said to watch, be the queen of heaven and earth. She was referred to as savior. She was referred to as Lord. And she was also said to have had powers over nature and spirits in this world. Artemis of the Ephesians had a temple. Look at this temple. The thing about the Roman world, every bit of our uh, New Testament came out of that period in which Rome occupied the known world. And in Rome, it was not uncommon for you and me and anyone else on the street to worship as many as, I don't know, 50 gods. In Ephesus, they say they worship probably 50 gods. But Artemis, queen of heaven and earth, Lord and Savior, she was top dog, and they built this temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It wasn't just a temple that you would go and worship. It was a banking center. Artemis of the Ephesians, as she was known, was on the coins that you would pass back and forth as you would trade in the temple and in the marketplace. And if that wasn't enough, she was such a big deal that there were games held in her honor. There was an Olympic-style game held in her honor. Beyond that, there was a month of their year named after her. She was culturally omnipresent. She was it. When you pulled out your pocketbook and paid in the month named after her at the games in her honor, you cannot escape Artemis of the Ephesians. And the thing about Ephesus is this. Ephesus was no small podunk city, okay? Ephesus had about 200,000 people in the greater Ephesus region. Ephesus was a rich, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic city on the coast of the Mediterranean. You're telling me that's a pretty nice place to be. If Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia, which was the richest province in the Roman Empire, this is the richest city in the richest province of the empire that ruled the world. This city was a big, big deal. So when this city, which is a very big deal, has a god or goddess who is a very big deal, you expect Paul, who we're told is an apostle of whom? Christ Jesus. 
you can expect when Paul rolls into town and sets up camp for how many years? Three whole years. You can expect that he's going to rustle some feathers. Because I think about in Dallas, on our way to church tonight, we swung into a Walgreens and Amy was behind a gentleman that was purchasing something. And this guy said to this guy in the cash register, he said, hey, go Cowboys. And I kid you not, this cashier looked him dead in the eye, no smile on his face and says, I'm not a Cowboys fan. I mean, that's like sacrilegious in this town, man. And then Amy threw the stuff on the ground and stormed out of that Walgreens because he offended the God of Dallas. They're in Lambo. We must pray for the cowboys. They are our God. They are culturally omnipresent in the months of September to January if it's a good year. This is a big deal. Paul sets up camp. And he begins to teach as he always does in the Jewish synagogue. But then he ruffles so many feathers with the Jewish folk saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, life in Christ Jesus. They didn't like that. He only made it three months. So then they kicked him out and he was in a big, big theater that sat thousands in the city of Ephesus, which was the biggest city in the richest province of the empire of the world. He goes into a theater and for years he says, no Artemis. Christ is Lord. You've heard it said, Artemis is Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. You've heard it said, she is Savior. I'm saying, Christ is Savior. And all of a sudden, this business of Jesus is Lord. Jesus demands all of us. When you're in a city where you see that just outside the city walls, and you have her coins in your pocket, and Paul comes and says, the big picture of the universe is that God, Yahweh of the Jews, has finished his saving plan in Jesus, the ultimate Jew. He is Savior. He is Lord. And he is offering our whole life to come into his kingdom. Offer your allegiance to Jesus, not Artemis. Come to Jesus' temple which is the church in Ephesus, not that beautiful temple. And we look at Ephesus, and the reason why this is important is because this letter was optimistic and written to that city and the cities in that rich province of Asia, and it made the rounds, and he said, Jesus and his view and his life is more beautiful than that. And so it's so contemporary. Not only when we talk about the temple and statues, it's so contemporary. Why? Because guess what? There is a God in our culture, and it's called money. It's called consumerism. And it's everywhere you look. Just like Artemis, when you drive down Central Expressway, there's this mall and this shopping center and these billboards, and then you go home and you turn on the TV, and there's commercials. And then when you get online, there's ads and pop-ups, and it's saying, bye, 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 bye. And this letter is contemporary because it puts before us the beautiful view that life in Christ is more beautiful, and watch, it can actually work. So Paul is here in Ephesus, and he's saying, no, Artemis, Jesus. Read Acts 19. We don't have time right now. Read Acts 19, 
Because when he started to hit the Ephesian pocketbook, this guy came who made beautiful silver shrines of that beautiful goddess lady that we just saw. Just like that picture, he would make silver shrines to her. And so many people were saying no to Artemis and yes to Jesus that guess what happened? The guy making those silver shrines and statues got all the other guys and gals making those silver shrines and statues. They had a powwow with their pitchforks and their torches. And you can read it in Acts 19. They say, this guy, Paul, is taking our whole city in the name of Jesus. And we say, hail Queen Artemis of the Ephesians. Not Jesus. And they come to where Paul was teaching in that theater. They find some of his disciples. And there are people ready to kill him. Because it's all fun and games if you tell people you can go to heaven when you die. Just pray this prayer and make Jesus one of the 50. Make him one of the 50 other gods we can have. Make him right there with the cowboys and consumerism and lust and all the other things that we want to be in other than being in Jesus. We don't want to put all of us in Jesus. We don't want to hitch our whole wagon to Jesus because there's 50 other things that are much more beautiful to look at and ski down, right? And he says, guess what? This whole town is buying the message of the God who is rescuing the world and he's doing it in Jesus. And Paul has to go to another place because the jig is up. If more people are gonna hear about Jesus and if more gods are gonna be displaced in the province of Asia, it's better that Paul's alive and not dead. So to circle back around when I told you about his tearful goodbye to these elders in Ephesus, at the end of Acts 20, guess what? He says, I'm never going to see you again. And he loved them and he spent time with them. So if we put our text back up on the screen and we have this introduction from a guy named Paul and the bottom line is we'll just say, I believe Paul wrote it. That's what I say. You can go and read Greek and be a scholar or whatever. I'm, I'm not saying that flippantly. If you want to be a scholar, please go and teach me something. But this issue of to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus, if in the early manuscripts it doesn't say Ephesus, it makes sense of this letter. If you read Ephesians, if you sat and read Ephesians while I was talking about the temple and Artemis and all this, guess what? You never find any reference to, hey, I'm Paul and say hello to old John. I miss that brother. Say hey to this person and that person, which happens in all those other letters of Paul, right? It seems really impersonal, doesn't it? If you read ahead. But here's what I'm going to submit to you. All of these things, these backgrounds that we're talking about, the author, the recipient, all of this is important. But let's say that Ephesians is a bigger letter than to one church. I believe that Ephesians, many scholars believe Ephesians wasn't just for the church in Ephesus, though it was. Ephesians was a letter for not just Ephesus, 
But for the many cities around Ephesus, it was circular, it was written, so any single person in Ephesus or Laodicea or even on in Macedonia, all of these different places, they can pick up this letter written to God's, look, holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It would just be like if I labored with Providence Community Church for three years, and Lord willing, it will be more than that. That's only one year left. I hope there's more. I'm, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. But let's say for sake of example, I'm here for three years. And then I move to the God-forsaken place like California. That's beautiful, but, you know, it's not Texas. Let's say I go to California, and I'm there for 10 years. And then guess what? I want to type an email, and I want to write it. And I say, Adam, a pastor on behalf of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and sometime long ago, Providence Community Church, and then I say to God's holy people in Dallas, the faithful in Christ Jesus, I write this letter and I send it, and I send it where? To DFW. Because I'm such a big deal, y'all, that it not only goes to Providence Community Church, it goes in Garland and Mesquite and Rockwall and Cedar Hill or wherever else. But it gets its name down through the centuries because Ephesus was the biggest, most influential town in that region. And so what we have is this beautiful letter that is this big picture look of God's saving plan. And it's also the pathway that we follow day to day. And it's all about being in Christ Jesus. It's the central theme of Paul in all of his other letters, which is why I think Paul wrote this one. And it's not just for Ephesus. It's not just for them. It's for us today. And so as I close tonight, I want to just give you a sneak peek of what's ahead, and it's this. The whole letter, the whole focus on life in Christ always keeps in front of it the fact that you right now are rescued. And you are rescued not just because you feel it. You are rescued because, not because of some emotional decision, because you are positionally, not emotional, positionally in Christ, united to Christ. The big picture view from the ski lift, stick with me, is this. You are in Christ, whether you feel like it today or not. You're in Christ just as for centuries the Jewish people looked to their king. Remember David and Goliath? Guess what? Guess who fought Goliath? Was it a hundred people? A thousand people? Was it the nation of Israel? It was one guy, David. It was a boy. Think about David and Goliath. They go and they say, here's the one that God will anoint king. He goes to fight for us. And the king goes and he defeats Goliath. And guess who wins? Just David? All of Israel wins. In Christ, big picture, today, positionally, matter of fact, whether you feel like it or not, if you are Jesus's, you are Jesus's, no ifs, ands, or buts. Ephesians will tell us this. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse three of chapter one. You are chosen by God. 
He sought you out. He wants you, positionally, whether you feel it or not. Verse four, chapter one. Also in verse four, you are holy and blameless in God's sight, whether you feel holy or blameless. You are, because you're united to Christ. You are predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. The Father says, son, daughter, not person I hate, not person I don't know. Son, daughter, named. You're gonna receive glorious grace. It's freely given in the one he loves, Jesus, verse six of chapter one. What is it like to be in Christ Jesus positionally, not just emotionally? You're redeemed. You were wandering in darkness, we're gonna learn in chapter two. But guess what? God, who's rich in mercy, brought you back. That's a big picture thing. Do you feel like you've been brought back? I'm sorry it doesn't matter. You've been brought back. This is a big, beautiful view. So guess what? Because you've been brought back, because you're in Christ, chapter one, verse seven, you've been forgiven of sins. How many sins? All of them. How many times did Christ have to die? Once, not every time you sin. So when you feel like you're not forgiven, I'm gonna remind you tonight and every week in Ephesians, you've been forgiven because you're in Christ. Doesn't matter if you feel forgiven, you're forgiven, you're in Christ. You need to repent, you need to let go of the sin that easily entangles you, but when it comes to in or out, you're in Christ. Verse eight of chapter one. You have God's riches lavished on you. He doesn't hold back He dumps it all on you, riches, grace. You know the mystery of this big picture saving plan that it's all about Jesus. If you're following down in chapter one, that's just verse nine. You'll see all the unity, all things in heaven and earth under Jesus Christ. That, I'm not lying to you, is the first sentence of this letter. It's this It's one sentence, the second sentence after what we deal with in verses one to two. Next week, one sentence, all of that. That is what it means to scratch the surface on the ski lift big picture view of what it looks like to be in Christ. So I tell you tonight, as we introduce this letter, if you recall the question I had at the beginning, when you look at that big picture and you read that sentence in Ephesians and you read the beautiful sweeping theology of chapter two and three and all these beautiful things, you may be tempted to be on that ski lift and say, that's beautiful, but does it actually work? I'm here to tell you, it doesn't just matter that you are positionally in Jesus And I grant to you that that is a mystery and I'm gonna spend like 15 weeks trying to talk about it, but we just still won't even understand what it means to positionally be in Christ other than to remind you we have all of these things. You're not just positionally in Christ. You can actually live this life, listen, because Christ is powerfully with you. He's not just with you. He is powerfully in you. But the trouble is, like the Ephesians, we need to be reminded that we don't need to go back to the temple of Artemis. 
We don't need to go and pick all the other 50 gods. We don't need to say, this is too hard. We need to remember that the risen Savior is with you. The risen Savior is in you. And you are in the risen Savior. You just had to show up for the birth to be put in Christ by faith and allegiance in him. But better than David, as we close, better than David, what it means at least to be in Christ is that we are united to the one who slayed way bigger Goliaths than David ever did. Sin, death, Satan, cancer, depression, loneliness, anxiety. He has slayed them all. And he's in you powerfully. And he's waiting for us to remember, to respond, and see him work. When Jesus won, we won. When David won, Israel won. And that's the big picture, but it matters because guess what? When Goliath died, Israel didn't have to worry about Goliath anymore. So the big picture matters because our king defeated these people, these enemies that were darker and bigger than any Goliath, and we actually have the power to turn our skis and get down the mountain. Let's pray. Let's respond in song. And in the table, as we face the new year, as a church, looking to this letter to show us how to grow up into full maturity as we look ahead, would you just join me in a word of prayer? I know tonight has been a different night by way of Sunday school stuff, but the reality is that Jesus is with us, he is with you. And he may have wanted to be talking with you all day. So we, let's just give him a moment. I'll pray. We'll sing. And we invite you to come to the table if you are in Christ. <clears throat> so Father, I pray that this good stuff that we've looked at, this information... I pray that it wouldn't distract from what I feel I need reminding of in this moment, and that is that I'm Adam, I'm your son, and I am in the risen son, Jesus, and he is in me. So Lord, I pray that you would remind all of us here that you love us, that you care for us, that you're drawing us back to life and home with you. I pray in your kindness you would lead us to repentance, to repent of the Artemises in our life, the temples in our life. I pray that in your kindness you would turn and help us as we turn, rather. And that the risen power would break chains and strongholds in our church, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.